Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the podcast guests and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Decisive Point welcomes Mr. Bert Tussing and Colonel Benjamin Leitzel, who co-edited Contested Deployment with Dr. John Eric Powell. Tussing is the director of the Homeland Defense and Security Issues Group at the U.S. Army War College Center for Strategic Leadership. He holds a bachelor's degree in English from the Citadel and master's degrees in national security and strategic studies from the U.S. Naval War College and in strategic studies from the U.S. Army War College. He is a distinguished graduate of the Marine Corps Command and Staff College. Powell is a visiting professor assigned to the U.S. Army War College as the liaison officer from the Homeland Defense Civil Support Office at the Maneuver Support Center of Excellence at Fort Leonard Wood. He holds Bachelor of Science degrees from Western Carolina University and Colorado State University, master's degrees from the Medical University of South Carolina, the Naval Postgraduate School, and the University of South Florida and a doctorate from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Leitzel, U.S. Air Force retired, is a professor at the U.S. Army War College, where he oversees senior leader cyberspace education and leads the college's cyber working group. Thank you both so much for joining me. We're here to talk about your work, Contested Deployment. The assumption the homeland will provide a secure space for mobilization and deployment is no longer valid, and Contested Deployment not only affirms this, it offers suggestions to mitigate concerns about this topic. For clarity, what's the working definition of contested deployment in this context? Stephanie, this is Bert Tuss with Homeland Defense and Security Issues. The simple answer is that a deployment faced with either incidental or inadvertent or even deliberate obstructions resulting in either the prohibition or even a significant delay in the relocation of our forces. That's what we refer to as contested deployment. What we mean by that beyond things is trying to get away from the traditional mindset that allowed us all through the 20th century to say, okay, the president has declared war, it's time for us to go. And basically, unfettered, we left from Fort Bragg, North Carolina to Savannah, Georgia, got on board the ships that we had there and made our way casually almost to the enemy's theater. If anyone thinks it's going to go like that again, I'm afraid they're in for a real disruption in their thinking. This is Ben Leitzel from the cyber team here in the Center for Strategic Leadership. I often look at it as Clausewitz's friction, that friction in the gears of the deployment mobilization process. We've all assumed that that's going to take place when we get forward to where we're deploying to and start operations. But in this case, we found through our research that there's a good chance that this friction, this fog and friction of war will start before we even leave like Bert says, the forts to the ports to get us out of Dodge, if you will, or out of the United States, forward to our area where we have always assumed we'll have some kind of fog and friction. Let's tackle some of the main points of your work. How might DOD and state and local government work with civil authorities preparing themselves to support military mobilization on American soil? Well, Steph, that's a really good question because, you know, we tend to think mostly in terms of the military being in support of civil authorities. Specifically, we have the missions that we call defense support of civil authorities. But due to the absolute distinction that we have in our American way of thinking between defense and law enforcement, 
The military simply does not do the sorts of things that would empower us to basically shut down operations in certain areas to allow for the movement of our forces. So even a matter of traffic direction, if you will, goes beyond what we as an American society expect of our military. That's law enforcement. So this is going to have to become part of the calculus in dealing with the issues. And that's the easy part. When we talk about, as we were saying earlier, deliberate disruption, let us say, for instance, there could be demonstrations against mobilization from right-thinking people who are exercising their rights, but perhaps also being emboldened and to a degree more incentivized by people on the outside pushing in that direction. So once we get to a situation like that, we're dealing with what a friend of mine, Neil Anderson, who was the NORTHCOM liaison to the Department of Homeland Security, coined as civil support to military activities. And that's going to be absolutely necessary. And it's not at all what we have been used to in the American military. Yeah. And from a cyber point of view, we like to look at it from if there is some kind of cyber attack on our critical infrastructure to slow our deployment. Department of Defense really is going to have three major challenges. Number one, how do we assist in halting that cyber attack and helping the nation and the critical infrastructure recover? In this case, how do we deploy forces while we're having some kind of impediments to the flow? And then, as Bert discussed, how do we support and how does the civilian community support us? So we could expect if an adversary attacked our critical infrastructure and some main uh, ports, transportation, maybe electrical grid goes down, it will definitely impact our deployment. But we're going to have to have forces available to help our citizens of the nation try to respond and recover from that as we try to deploy out of the United States. So uh, three major challenges there that we see. Strategic seaports. There are 22 of them across the United States. How do they fit into this scenario? Well, Stephanie, the strategic seaports have been very carefully selected based upon their ability for throughput, as the logisticians would call it, for their connection with strategic lines of communication, including the highway systems, especially the strategic highway network that is part of the overarching interstate system in the United States, and their basic capabilities on board the port structures themselves. The thing to keep in mind, though, is that of these 22 quote-unquote strategic seaports, 17 of those are what we refer to as dual-use seaports, so constant commercial activity going into and out of those places. So once again, this is not a, a scenario where we even imply momentarily that the military is in charge of everything that's going on here. We are frequently part of the guest, if you will, of the civil host of what's going on. So that plays very heavily in our calculus. Yes, and we have a great example of that. Within the last six months or so, we saw massive backups at the uh, ports of Los Angeles and on the California coast there. Those were just naturally due to a backup of supply chain issues without, at least us knowing it, any adversary trying to manipulate the process. So we can see a real-world example of this and what might happen if the adversary gets involved, if Mother Nature gets involved, and or if we just have some logistics failures on ourselves. One of the things that we've also got to think about as we talk about the combination of commercial and the military is the commercial entities that we work with work in terms of a business mindset, if you will. And so much of what we do, not only in the ports, but in the lines of communications and in the storage and everything else is based upon that just-in-time mindset, right? Well, that works out very well if things are working well and in a peacetime environment and in a business-type environment. But as you saw in our study, we were focusing 
on the requirements well beyond the norm. We have to balance the question of quote-unquote efficiency against effectiveness and get back to the business of, well, where's the redundancy in our system? Because we may need that sort of thing. Not the sort of thing an Amazon wants to deal with daily, but we're certainly going to have to be facing it. Back it up a little bit, going back to cyber and seaports, what would the impact of cyber attacks on seaports, ship transportation, and rail lines be? We see that much of our critical infrastructure, especially the transportation that you talked about, getting from the fort to the port and out of the port is dependent on computers, computer processors, information technology and operational technology. Lots of avenues for vulnerabilities there. And many of these entities are owned and or operated by the private sector. So although they're critical to the success of the Department of Defense, not only does the Department of Defense not own and operate many of these facilities, but there's no one in the federal government that does. So we're dependent upon private sector to ensure they have the highest standards of cybersecurity. And then we do our best to coordinate with them to inform them if there are any cyber attacks taking place on their systems, on their networks, trying to collaborate. So the group of critical infrastructure owners, whether that's the rail, in this case, road infrastructure, or at the ports, and the ports are extremely complex from trucks and rails coming into the port, the offloading of equipment at the port, the onloading onto the ships. And then if you envision it as air traffic control for airplanes, there's a maritime traffic control that gets in and out of the ports through the bays and out into the open waters. So it's an extremely complex computer run, if you will, operations system and systems of systems. Lots of vulnerability points, lots of areas where an adversary that's dedicated and has the time can try to probe into our systems. So we need to do our best as a whole of nation beyond just the government because the government doesn't run these to try to ensure cybersecurity. Cybersecurity for the efficiency of our industry and our private sector, like Bert said, and for the effectiveness of our Department of Defense, our Department of Homeland Security. How will the response to cyber attacks be handled? And are we prepared for this possibility given the current organization of DOD cyber units? Yes, that's part of what we tried to explore. When we started our research from the cyber point of view, we really went in from a can, may, and should perspective. The first question we asked was, can Department of Defense cyber protection teams, cyber defenders, protect critical infrastructure, as I said before, that's owned and operated by private sector on the most part, then may we do it? Are there laws on the books that either allow us, require us, or prohibit us from responding to this? And then finally, should we do it? Are there others that are empowered to do it? As we looked at this, discussed it with other subject matter experts around the nation, we found that many of these critical infrastructure owners from the private sector had their own cybersecurity teams, and they would be the first responders, if you will. Then critical infrastructure owners have mutual assistance programs and information and sharing and analysis centers where they'll bring in other cybersecurity professionals from their core industry to help them. After that, they can go out to the internationally reclaimed cybersecurity vendors. If there's a failure there, then they can reach out to the Department of Homeland Security, the Critical Infrastructure Cybersecurity Agency, 
for their experts. And finally, if DHS needs help, they will reach out and request Department of Defense support. So as you can see, it's not immediate that the Department of Defense Cavalry is going to come to the rescue. It's a lot of on-call being prepared and that our defense intelligence is aware of the attacks either before or while they're taking place so we can mitigate those problems before they become critical challenges. And Stephanie, in those regards, Ben has forgotten more about this stuff than I will ever know. But when we look <laughs> at the interdependency of critical infrastructure, the cyberspace environment runs through everything. But then it leads us to the next levels of vulnerability in other critical infrastructure sectors. And that, too, is something that came out in our study. As you know, the highway system that we're talking about, the American Society of Civil Engineers gave it like a C- minus in terms of its current structure. And they said it would take something like 10 years and an investment of $4.5 trillion to get the highways and bridges systems up to an acceptable level of sustainment, if you will. So this is one of the things that came out in our study. Happily, I would say the, the current administration seems to have taken that on. I don't know exactly how much of what we're looking at in the uh, restructuring initiatives that President Biden and company have put together directly associated with this, but anything is better than where we were when we were looking at this study back in 2018. I wish we had more time, but uh, we need to wrap it up. Any final thoughts before we go? I would say this, Stephanie, the study was it was an interesting study, but it was anything but all-inclusive. We had a great bunch of students and, and faculty members that came to look at this, but we had to deliberately take components of the issue to be illustrative of the larger challenges that are faced in contested deployment. I will tell you again that, uh, you know, we did the study in 2018, just finally getting to publication right now. But since that time, General Van Herk, the commander of NORTHCOM, has taken this up as one of his personal banners, just pointing out that if we cannot project the force then we're not going to be able to do what needs to be done, not only in, in terms of protecting ourselves, but in preparing to assist our allies. What he refers to as left of launch is something that we're going to have to be focusing more and more on. And to leave it on a positive note, our research has, if you will, in, in the operational design construct that we'd like to teach here at the Army War College, we've identified some of the environment and maybe the problem statement with that awareness of our leadership that there is a challenge, that there is a problem, we can start taking the appropriate approaches to overcome this hurdle. One of the areas that I saw just this week reported was an initiative called Hack the Port, where the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security has invited hackers in to try to hack entities in our port systems, not real ports, but simulated port facilities, and trying to understand if our best and brilliant minds can probe into there, we can find those vulnerabilities and maybe close them. Thank you both so very much. This was very enlightening. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.